My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Activity kills in us the sense of spiritual awe. We cannot comprehend the great life behind all names and forms just because science brings home to us how we can use the powers of nature. This familiarity has bred a contempt for her ultimate secrets. Our relation with nature is one of practical business. We tease her, so to speak. To know how she can be used to serve our purposes, we make use of her energies, whose source yet remains unknown. In science, our relation with nature is one that exists between a man and his servant, or in a philosophical sense, she is like a captive in the witness box. We cross-examine her, challenge her, and minutely weigh her evidence in human scales which cannot measure her hidden values. On the other hand, when the self is in a communion with a higher power, nature automatically obeys, without stress or strain, the will of man. This effortless command over nature is called miraculous by the uncomprehending materialist. And today we re-examine the work of Paramahansa Yogananda with returning guest Rizwan Virk, who's recently written a book about Yogananda titled Wisdom of a Yogi, Lessons for Modern Seekers from Autobiography of a Yogi. I'm Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and enjoy this conversation with Rizwan Virk. player it lives outside of the game and the avatar is the character in the game and for a while you are stuck to that avatar right you think that's all there is in fact what happens when we give birth or a process called insolment by religious scholars right? nobody knows what that means right? <laughs> like when is the soul in the body 
And I say, well, it's when you put on the headset and you forget <laughs> that there's, there was a player. And the only thing you see is the avatar. And maybe in dreams and when you're in downtime, you might remember. And, but there's also this element of AI and neurons being uploaded into these virtual worlds. And is it possible that the soul requires a complex enough substrate, like a biological one, to inhabit? Could it also inhabit an AI substrate, right? Like if we get AI that's, that has enough complexity, could that AI also have a soul? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. And with me today on this very special episode of the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast is a returning champion. He's here to talk about his latest book. You know him as Rizwan Verk, a man with a large resume, a varied resume. And I'm excited to have him back on for this because we first met talking about the simulation hypothesis and how we're in a symbolic metaphorical video game or maybe an actual one somewhere in another multiverse but today we're shifting gears slightly we're going to be talking about a book that Rizwan put out very recently but before we get out onto that Tell us a little bit about yourself, Riz. Welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. And yeah, tell us about this new book and what compelled you to venture with this, because I think it's a really neat idea to share your perspective and Yogi, I forget his full name, but what we're talking about is an autobiography of a Yogi, and you've created a sort of addition to that for the 75th anniversary. So tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, great to be back on the show with you. It's been a year or two since I was here last. And, you know, there's actually some overlap between what we talked about last time, which was that the world is a simulation or a video game, and the views of many of the Indian mystics about the physical world being some type of an illusion. And that's where there's a connecting thread between my work there and here. And, you know, just as a recap, I began to think about this whole idea of are we in a video game when I was playing a virtual reality ping pong video game. And I was, you know, playing this game with this headset on. This was like five, six years ago. So the headsets were bigger and bulkier. And there were wires going to the ceiling and graphics weren't that great. But yet the responsiveness was good enough that my brain forgot for a moment that this wasn't a real ping pong game so much so that I tried to put the paddle down on the table and I tried to lean against the table. And of course there was no table. So the paddle fell to the floor and I almost fell over. And then I began to wonder how long would it take us to get to that point where we could create something like the matrix, right? We could create something that was indistinguishable from physical reality. And that led me down this whole rabbit hole uh, of looking into quantum physics, which we talked a bit about last time, and also at all the world's religions, but particularly the Eastern religions, with Hinduism and Buddhism, about how they viewed the world and how it was pretty consistent with this idea that we were players in a video game. 
So I ended up going down that rabbit hole. And during that time, you know, I did a deep dive into some of the, the Indian mystics. And one of the, one of the ones that I spent some time on was from Hansa Yogananda, who was author of autobiography of a yogi. And so it was a couple of years ago, out of the blue, I ended up getting a note from someone at HarperCollins, India saying, you know, it's the 75th anniversary of autobiography of a yogi. And we'd like to, we'd like to publish a new book about the lessons that were contained in there, but we want the, the lessons to be for a new generation, you know? And so we think you should write the book. And so, you know, my, at first my question was, are you sure you want me to write the book? I mean, I'm not a, a Swami. I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of Yogananda. I've studied his teachings, but I'm not necessarily part of formally part of his, you know, his organization. And they said, no, because, you know, what you write about video games and what you write about you know, modern technology and what it's like to be in the world and try to adopt these spiritual teachings is kind of what we're looking for. And so, you know, one of the lessons in, in, in this book, there's 14 lessons that I've pulled out of the autobiography, but really they apply even for those who haven't read you know, Autobiography of Yogi, they apply. And one of them is sometimes the universe gives you a task. And whether you're ready for it or not, that is your task to complete, should you choose to accept it, right? <laughs> Going back to like the Mission Impossible theme. And what happened was Yogananda was a young monk in 1920, and he was teaching a bunch of kids at a place called Ranchi, which, was, you know, he had a little school there. And he had this vision, and this vision he saw all these kind of white-skinned people, and he just assumed they were Americans. I mean, he had never met an American. <laughs> and for him, that was a call that's uh, what I call a clue that it was time for him to go to the West and to try to actually start teaching some of these ancient yogic ideas to people you know, in the materialistic West, as he thought of it at the time. And, you know, then he went back to Calcutta and he actually got a formal invitation like the next week or something to go attend a, a conference in Boston and to speak about Hinduism. Now, he wasn't necessarily the best person to do that. I mean, he rarely gave public speeches. In fact, he had never given one in English before. His English wasn't great. In fact, you could hardly, I mean, he knew the language because he had gone to college, but only grudgingly, he just wanted to be a monk and go off and meditate. But, you know, his guru had told him that he needed to finish college because someday he might be going to the West and education was respected. So, you know, he knew enough about English, but he wasn't necessarily fluent in it, speaking and so he wasn't necessarily the guy who felt the most prepared. I mean, you think they would have gone with an older Swami or somebody that, you know, had given speeches before in English, but yet that was his task, right? It was what I like to call a karmic task. And sometimes the task just come, it's put in front of you and you realize, oh yeah, this is something that I was meant to do. And so, you know, I went ahead and, you know, as we were chatting before the book came out recently in April in India, where it's become a bit of a bestseller. I mean, you can see it at the bookstores at airports like New Delhi and Calcutta. And that we and I just released it here in the U.S. this summer as well. So pretty excited to get it out there. But there's a big overlap between simulation theory and, and Yogananda's ideas. Yeah, and congratulations on the success of the book here and across the world in India there. That's awesome. I hope it does just as well out here. Now, I've been familiar slightly with Paramhansa Yogananda through his book, of course, but also 
he had such a big influence, especially here in the United States, you know, really like now we have this kind of like strip mall yoga that's everywhere, but I don't know that would even be a thing without a man like him. Can we talk a little bit about his, you know, impact on American culture and what motivated it was this vision. He saw himself going to America, right? With these white glowing people in this dream was that his single motivation or did more occur that brought him to America? Well, there, there was more to it, but you know, his guru had been asked to write a book about the similarities between the Hindu scriptures and the Bible. And he had been asked by a kind of a strange myth, almost mythical figure who appears in the autobiography, who's called the Maha avatar Babaji, who is supposedly one of these masters who lives in the Himalayas, and he's lived pretty much for hundreds of years, but it looks like he's 25 years old because he knows some yogic techniques that allows him to basically, you know, reverse the aging process. And so, so Maha Avatar Babaji asked Sri Yukteswar, who ended up being Yogananda's guru, and there's quite a few stories in the autobiography that sound fantastical to us. There's lots of miracles, right? there's levitating saints. There are saints with two bodies in different places. And part of my the reason of writing this book was to say, what should we as modern readers in the scientific world think about these stories? But so there was this element where, you know, there was a bit of karma, a bit of prophecy, if you will, in his going out. But, I, you know, another aspect of, of his life was that you know, he came and he actually lived. Uh, Yogananda came and lived in the U.S. starting in 1920. And that was, you know, 100 years ago when you think about it, right? And back then, yoga was not very well known here. In fact, today you mentioned the strip mall yoga, and, and that's absolutely right. But if you read Autobiography of a Yogi, there's very little in there about the physical postures, right? The asanas, as they're called, and that they're just one of the eight limbs of yoga. And we'll talk about those in a little bit. But, you know, he was often talking more about meditation techniques, what we would call energization techniques or meditating on the chakras and moving energy up the spine or breath meditation. So, so yoga was defined more as a way to get closer to God. And he, and so when he was here, he taught, you know, all over the country, crisscrossed the country. You know, he drove from Boston to LA where he established his headquarters. And in fact, just last week I was in Los Angeles and visited the, the headquarters of his group, the Self-Realization Fellowship, which is on Mount Washington. Beautiful area overlooking. And, you know, that was one of the buildings that he had seen in a vision when he was in India. And when he saw it, he knew that was a building he had to buy for his organization, even though they didn't have the money, right? And so one of his biographers, a guy named Philip Goldberg, called him the first modern guru because he wasn't afraid to use more modern analogies and more modern techniques to try to spread the message, including teaching to large groups of people, using correspondence courses, finding similarities between, you know, the yogic tradition and the Christian traditions at the time. And then his book was written in 1940. It was finished in 1945 or 1946, but it was really during the counterculture in the 60s and 70s, that his book became one of the most popular books at the time. It was like this paperback edition, which is probably one that many people have seen in the bookstores, kind of a famous picture of him with his long flowing hair and kind of glowing eyes. And, you know, it, people would give that book away. So George Harrison, you know, was given the book by a musician from India named Ravi Shankar, who's pretty famous there. 
And that was George's introduction to Eastern mysticism. And then he used to give away this copies of the, he used to have stacks of copies of this book and he would just give them away to people when he felt they needed to be regrouped. And then, you know, Stephen, Steve Jobs, who's the founder of Apple, for him, it was pretty much his favorite book, certainly one of his favorites. And what happened was he went to India and someone had left a copy of this book in the hostel where he was staying. And, you know, he read it there and then he read it every year afterwards. And then when his biographer who wrote, like, there's a pretty recent famous biography about Steve Jobs, Walter Isaacson said he visited him just before his death. And he looked at his iPad and his iPad had only one book on it and it was Autobiography of the Yogi. And so it's interesting that generation passed that book along and then at his funeral or his memorial service, which was held at Stanford after the funeral, the CEO of Salesforce.com, Mark Benioff told the story, he's told the story publicly because so they gave everyone a little wooden box. And then when he went home and opened this box and he looked inside and inside it was a copy of Autobiography of the Yogi. <laughs> and that was kind of Steve Jobs' last message as Benioff interpreted it, which is, you know, actualize yourself, right? Move towards self-realization, work on yourself. And so the book had a huge impact kind of on the 60s and 70s generation. And for people like me who were kind of Gen X or Gen Xers, right? It was passed on to us, so we heard about it from this generation that had read about it so much. Uh, and, you know, I would say a lot of younger people today haven't necessarily read it. I mean, it's a big book. It's small, but it's like 500 pages. But it's a ton of inspirational stories about the wise, holy men of India. And it presents a view of yoga as a universal practice, right? Not a practice that's so grounded to any one religion. But it's really the stories about the miracles and these crazy things that happened to him that I think, you know, get people's attention. But then there's a lot of lessons that are embedded within the book. And that's what, you know, I wanted to draw out was that there is wisdom here for the modern generation who's used to just going on YouTube and, you know, just watching, you know, gurus online and stuff, but to really look at these stories again and, and to see, you know, how they might impact us today. Yeah, and I think it's important to reverse engineer, so to speak, this time period because a lot of why we have what we have here now with the computers in front of us and the digitally augmented reality we're stepping into, I wonder how much of that is a result of this new way of thinking that was seeded very early in the 20th century. Obviously, Paramahansa Yogananda had an impact, but how do you think he was met by people? I mean, how did he describe his interactions with people back then in the United States? Because we have the notion that, oh, America is this Christian nation, but maybe you're familiar, maybe not, but a very interesting gentleman, Ronnie Pontiac, I've had him on the show twice. He's written this book all about the odd strains of different metaphysical or occult sort of practices throughout American history. And when it comes to the 20s, it seems like Yogananda was stepping into a melting pot of strange and wild, different, unique you know, cultures and ideas, spiritualities, practices. There was Platonists. There were people doing seances, right? So how was he met when he visited America with all these Eastern uh, mystic ideas? Well, the 1920s was an interesting time, as you mentioned, right? Because you know, it was the, the Roaring Twenties that came after the uh, World War One, which they called the Great War. And you know, he got on the first boat 
from India after the war, because there, had, you know, during the war there really wasn't a lot of passenger traffic back and forth, and so he arrived at almost a good time where I think people were searching for new ide- ideologies, new ways of looking at the world, and it was one of these waves. Like I talked about the '60s, right? The '20s also, you know, had a bit of a wave, and so I'd say he was treated fairly well in some ways, but then in other ways, you know, he was still this. This brown guy with this long hair wearing these weird ro- you know, yogi robes in a nation that for the most part didn't know much about yoga beyond, say, some stereotypes. And, you know, he had he doesn't really mention this in his autobiography, but if you read biographies of him, he had some pretty serious setbacks. And this is, you know, one of the lessons that I bring out in the book is that sometimes setbacks may be a part of your story, right, particularly if they help you you know, to refine your mission. And so, you know, he spent a lot of time, as I said, traveling and speaking. And, you know, for example, when he spoke in D.C., he was supposed to speak at one point, you know, he visited the president, Calvin Coolidge. At other points, he was supposed to give a talk. Uh, But, for example, the African-American attendees were not allowed to be in the same room (laughs) with the white people. And so he had to go separately. And, you know, so but he did, you know, build up this esteem. He had another brother disciple of his named Jirananda who came and was teaching in L.A. And then when he was in Miami, he had they had this big scandal where supposedly the husband of one of the women who were taking classes (laughs) at the Self-Realization Fellowship came up and bopped Swami Dirananda on the nose because he was angry that his wife, you know, was like, you know, in these dark rooms with incense and chanting. And that story broke all across the country, right? (laughs) And it said basically, you know, strange Hindu love cults, right? There was all these sensational stories saying that, you know, they're using these weird Eastern techniques to try to lure American women. Right, good Christian, God-fearing American women, right? Which is interesting because even today, you know, most if you go to yoga class, right? Probably seventy percent of the attendees tend to be women <laughs> these days, and even back then, there was probably a, a, a bit of that. But so what happened was he was in Miami and he was supposed to give a talk, and you know, the police said, "No, we, we can't have you give the talk because it's too dangerous because all these husbands are upset in Miami." <laughs> that are, you know, at your talk, that they're going to come and they're going to hurt you. And, you know, he wasn't having any of it. He's like, no, I'm still going to go and give the talk because I didn't do anything wrong. And, you know, but eventually he had to give in and he left, you know, and and then later the whole story eventually went away. They realized there was nothing to it, right? It was just, you know, they were doing these meditation and yoga techniques, but there was no weird love cult going on. (laughs) And, but at the same time, you know, that, that led to all kinds of issues. Eventually Durananda left. It was like his kind of number two guy who, and he did end up marrying like one of the women <laughs> that was there and he took half the organization with him. And so Yogananda had been in the U S for like 10, 15 years at that point, building up this organization, teaching, and then the whole organization started to fall apart. He went to Mexico and he was meditating and he's saying, you know, please God, maybe I can just go back to India and meditate. Like this is just too much here right? <laughs> to keep doing this in America and trying to show people. But, you know, as I mentioned before, it was part of his life task. And sometimes these setbacks are part of our task as well. And so what happened was, you know, after that, he decided to teach a smaller number of students, but to find a way to reach a greater number of people. And he spent you know, pretty much the next decade of his life in Encinitas in San Diego, where he had a hermitage by the sea. And I actually went there during the writing. I'll tell you a story about that in a minute, which is quite interesting. But during that time, he decided to write this book, Autobiography of the Yogi. 
And that book has gone on to inspire millions of people, right? Not just in the U.S., but it's actually made its way around the world. It's an example of what scholars sometimes call the pizza effect, right? which is pizza came from Italy to the U.S., but what we think of as pizza is not really what the original thing was. But what we think of as pizza today, American pizza, has now gone back to Italy, and that's pretty much what you get back there, right? So Yogananda has gone back all the way to India and become quite popular there. But these setbacks, I think, sometimes are an important part of our story. And, you know, part of this book is I tell stories of my from my own life and stories from other people that I interviewed to kind of contrast those to say, yes, these messages, you know, are still relevant today. In my own story, you know, I was at kind of the height of my entrepreneurial career and starting to be a venture capitalist. I was teaching or overseeing a program at MIT on startups for video game companies, which is kind of my background. And I was getting ready to raise this big venture capital fund, which is kind of the next step for a lot of entrepreneurs at Silicon Valley. And I had some very serious issues and health issues and I had to have heart surgery. And I write about this in this book for the first time. And suddenly I couldn't finish the program, you know, at MIT. And this kind of completely knocked me off the path. But during this time, I had a series of visions when I was recovering from surgery, which very much convinced me that what I needed to do was to write, right? And at that point, I, I was worried that I was, you know, having heart attacks or I kept going back to the emergency room. There were all kinds of weird things and I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. But I got a very clear message that, that part of my goal in this life part of my story, if you will, right? I like to think of our lives as stories that maybe we plan out parts of them and then we have the free choice whether to follow those or not, you know, was to do more writing. And although I had been doing writing as a part-time thing, you know, I had published like two books over 10 years at that point, that next nine months when I was kind of waylaid from being able to do any business activity because I had a tough recovery. And every time I would recover, I tried to jump back at the business world and I have to go back in for another heart procedure or something. And it was, I very clearly got the message that I should focus on my writing. And that was something that it was almost like the universe made me do that. Right. And then I published two books in the next 12 months, right. <laughs> Compared to including the simulation hypothesis, which was my best selling book. And also, you know, it was kind of a culmination of all these threads that I had been researching for years. And so, you know, that for me is an important lesson in the biography of Yogananda and the life of Yogananda, but also in our own lives. And I have stories from other people as well that I interviewed as part of this process, you know, but yeah, I mean, he was received well in during the twenties, but by the thirties, things got very rough for him. And then it was, you know, during the thirties to forties that he ended up writing the book. And then the book is what ended up being his, his everlasting legacy. Oh yeah. Let me tell you the story. So I went to Encinitas during the writing of this. And I, you know, one of the lessons in the book is, is go out of your way for little or big pilgrimages whenever you can, right? And Yogananda used to take time when he was traveling to visit different temples or just natural sites of beauty that would put him into a meditative state and he would meditate there and he would get inspiration. And I was, you know, struggling with how to write this book. And I said, well, I need some inspiration. Well, why don't I go to where he wrote his book? The problem was we were in the middle of COVID, <laughs> right? And it wasn't open to the public. And so I ended up contacting the SRF guys and they actually arranged a private visit for me, which was very nice. So I was able to go and meet the monks who lived there and spend some time, you know, in the whole, the gardens and the hermitage. But most importantly was the room where he wrote the book. It was this study and it's still arranged pretty much like it's been arranged. And Yogananda used to always go to places where, you know, great spiritual masters lived in the past. 
where temples were established for them as a way of tapping into the energy. And that's kind of what I was doing in this case. I was doing a pilgrimage um, to, to his room, and it was overlooking the Pacific Ocean. In fact, there's a beach down there, like under the cliffs, that is called Swami's Beach now. Like that's the formal name because he used to go there so often and walk on that beach. And so while I was there, I was able to just meditate with a couple of the monks and just close my eyes and not formally meditate, but just kind of be there and close my eyes. And for a writer like me, it's quite thrilling to think, okay, that's where he wrote that book. And then suddenly I had this vision of him while I was there. And, you know, I, I looked and I saw him fairly clearly in my mind's eye. And he was looking at he had a stack of papers, right? Which of course is how they wrote manuscripts back then. And, you know, he looked at me and he kind of had a little mischievous glint in his eye. And then he opened up these patio doors out to the, you know, that opened out to the Pacific Ocean. And he took this, to my horror, he took the stack of papers and he threw them out. <laughs> and I was like, hey, what are you doing? Because, you know, back then, one, you know, you typically only had one copy of a manuscript <laughs> if you lose it. And then he kind of looked back at me and I was watching these papers. And then what happened in my vision was each of the papers turned into little birds, little white birds, right? And they all went out to different parts of the world to kind of chirp and spread the message of those pages. And for me, and then he smiled, like, do you get it? Like, it's important to put the words down because they will be your message for people. And that's what he was doing. And that's why I was there. I was there to be inspired to try to do the same thing. So it was a very kind of tailored message to me and a vision to me. But those are what I call clues on our own personal treasure hunt. And so that was a, a you know, a cool story that happened to me when I was taking a little pilgrimage. And I encourage other people, you know, to do that. That's incredible. Wow. And to think of how large Yogi, Yoganandan's flock of birds was, I mean, to mention earlier, all the books that have been sold, you know, all the copies of his that have been passed around. I mean, his flock of birds has visited nearly half the world. I mean, yeah, this is an incredible vision and all in Encinitas, California, Swami's Beach is the name of the place, right? Yeah, well, that's the name of the beach. And then it's called, I think it's called the Encinitas Hermitage or the Self-Realization Fellowship wow. Hermitage. That is Beautiful. the place, you know, where I had that particular vision. But yeah, now it's open to the public again. You can go and take tours and stuff. But really, I encourage people to take, you know, little pilgrimages to other places, which could be places where they think, you know, certain saints or people they want to be inspired by, you know, whether it's just being in the mountains or seeing the mountains every day and to take some time to do that, because I think that is important. That's a way for us, you know, to get inspired. There was another story in the autobiography where he went to Kashmir. Uh, you know, he'd been trying. Okay. So first of all, he'd been trying his entire life to run away from home to go to the Himalayas, right? When he was a boy, he had this vision and in this vision, he saw these yogis meditating and he was like who are you and they said oh we are the yogis of the himalayas and he was only like eight years old and he's like oh yeah i want to run away and put on a robe and go become a wandering monk and of course his father and his older brother are like no you can't do that so they would go you know stop him each time and there's a very colorful story of him and his friends in high school jumping on the trains to go to you know the foothills of the himalayas and his brother gave chase across northern india <laughs> to bring him back so that, he, you know, his father said he had to finish high school. And so, you know, he had this vision that was kind of right in general, where he knew he wanted to be this monk, but it was wrong in the specifics, you know, that he ended up not being a monk in the Himalayas. In fact, he spent very little time going to the Himalayas, right? Because he spent all his time wandering around America, right? And sometimes we have visions like that of the story of our lives, but we don't know exactly when or how 
things will evolve. And, you know, in my own case, if you had asked me in high school, I would tell you I was going to be a computer entrepreneur and then I was going to be a writer. Right. So, I mean, how did I know that? Kind of what happened. Right. And yet at the same time, I hadn't really switched to being a writer. I thought I was going to do it at the age of 28, which is when I started writing my very first book at the age of 28, but I was still doing business stuff well into my forties when this incident I talked about earlier happened with my health that it was only after that, that I seriously devoted, you know, a lot of time, you know, to my writing. But so it was right in the general ideas, but the specifics, you know, we still had to work out those specifics. So at one point he did finally make it to the Himalayas and he went to Kashmir and he was admiring the natural beauty. And there was a temple there, a temple to a monk named Shankara who's called you know Adi Shankaracharya because he kind of reorganized the Swami order back in like 800 or so. And so he was in the mountains and he was kind of meditating while he was at a temple dedicated to Shankara. And this was the kind of thing that he did. And it was there that he had a vision of this building on the hill, which was ended up being the uh, the headquarters of you know SRF today in LA, which is on Mount Washington. And so, you know, because he was in a similar place and he was tapping into a similar energy. Shankara walked all around India, right, trying to spread his message about about you know the Vedic teachings and helping reorganize the Swami order, which Yogananda was a part of almost you know a thousand years later or more than a thousand years later. But sometimes it's for us, a pilgrimage can just be to a place you know, in the mountains or even like here in Silicon Valley, there's a little park near Google, right next to Google, where I like to go because I feel like I'm a million miles away from Silicon Valley <laughs> that I'm looking out at, you know, these hills of somewhere far away. And there was a guy named John Muir, who I quote in the book, who whose name is on Muir Woods, which is like the redwood, redwood trees north of San Francisco. And he was a conservationist. And he, he always talked about how he didn't like the term hiking because people were like, you know, sitting there like hiking, like trying to accomplish a task or doing the mountain. And he always liked the term saunter. And he felt that we should always saunter when we're in these beautiful places in nature. And he told the story how in medieval times, people would be going to the Holy Land through France and they would ask them, where are you going? And they would say something like saunter or, you know, I'm going to the Holy Land. And he said that was the origin of that term is going to the holy lands. And so he, you know, he said these redwood trees for these mountains are our holy lands and we should, you know, we should saunter through them. We should take in the energy of the places. And so that's something that Yogananda did a lot. And that's, you know, a message for us too. Beautifully put. Yeah. And such an appropriate message for me, this show and my audience. I'm not sure how familiar you are. Maybe I told you about it in our first conversation, but I have a book that I've written, very short book. And the idea is it's an ARG. It's a game that you can play wherever you are, wherever you happen to live. And it's called The Scene, The Synchromystic Exploration of the Ever-Expanding Now, because that's all we're ever in, this ever-expanding now. And the purpose of it is to randomly generate a destination or randomly generate a journey to said destination that you picked randomly or give some purpose to it. But you bringing up the pilgrimage kind of reminded me of that because... That's exactly what I set out to do with this game is to give people that presence of mind to say like, no, the destination, you know, can be anywhere. It doesn't have to be 
a mini golf place. It doesn't have to be a restaurant. It doesn't have to be a vacation destination. It can be as simple as that mountain you drive by on your commute and you think, oh, that's neat, but you never have sauntered up it before. Well, here's the scene giving you that opportunity. I love it. And it demonstrates to me the interconnectedness and everything you just spoke about with Yogananda's life and how his story was almost a service to others. He went through that as a service to others, right? In this selflessness to say like, this is what your life can be like to learn from this, right? I think that's something that we all need to aspire to is to live a story worth sharing. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And that's interesting that you call that, you call it ARG, is that what you call it? Yeah, active role-playing game, right? That would be... Yeah, and that's great that you use the term game as well, you know, because that's a another key lesson in the book is that the world is like a movie, a dream, a video game. And, you know, Yogananda used to teach... So these metaphors of what the world is like have been around for a while, right? You go back to the Vedas from 5,000 years ago, and they talk about the Leela, which is like the play or the play of the gods, right? And they talk about life being like a Leela. And turns out there's an old game in India called Snakes and Ladders, which I think was adapted to the West to be called Shoots and Ladders. And somehow I found a book about the old version of this. And I remember this as a kid because I was born in, in Pakistan, although I moved to the U.S. and was raised in the U.S. since I was like four years old. So I don't remember too much, but I do remember like this game about these snakes and these ladders. And I came across this random book in a used bookstore in Berkeley recently, which talked about the ancient meaning of, of Leela, why they called that the Leela. They called this game the same term that the Vedas use for our game of life. And it, and like rolling the dice was kind of like random karmic influences that would take you up to places of enlightenment and back. And I didn't realize there was a whole spiritual backstory. Like it was like the game of life. If you've ever played that where, you know, you start off, you have, you get married, you have kids, you know, you get a job. It was kind of like that, but then sometimes you get pushed back, you know, by a snake in that case, or by a shoot in in the Western version of it. But the dream metaphor is one that's been used quite a bit, right? The Buddha used the idea that the world is like a dream. In fact, after he achieved his enlightenment, he was asked, by a woman, what are you? And he said, I am Buddha, you know, in his language, which was Pali, but the Sanskrit root of that was both, which meant to awake, right? To, to wake up. And so he was trying to say he was awake, which means the rest of us were dreaming, right? <laughs> but Yogananda used the technology of his day to update the metaphor. And so, you know, he had these visions of World War One, where there was so much suffering. And that was, you know, as I said, that was called the Great War because it was the first time machine guns and like automated, you know, death machines, if you will, were used. And so there was a scale of carnage that had never really been seen before at that point. Of course, in World War II, it was even worse. But, you know, and, and so he saw these newsreels and he had these visions and he was like, well, Lord, why do you permit so much suffering in this world? And, and he got this clear answer during a meditation that, you know, that the world is like a movie. He said, those newsreels you see, you see the suffering in them. And he, and he saw visions much, much more vivid even than what he saw in the newsreels of the suffering. He goes, but the actors don't die in a movie, right? The whole thing is a, what he called a play of chiaroscuro, which is an Italian word I had to look up which is a term for art that is like light and dark, light and shadow. It's a play of light and shadow. And, uh, you know, it's like the relative cosmic dream. And so he started to use this 
analogy of the movie projector as you know the way to think about the world and you have to look away from the projector you have to look towards the light and that the whole world is made of light being projected and we're so caught up by it. it's like if you've ever been in a movie theater and in the middle of a movie you've kind of looked away i mean i used to do this as a kid sometimes i'd look away from the screen just to see everybody else you know everybody else just like totally transfixed in the movie and i usually was too but then i'd also see this flicker of the flame of the frames right and you're not really aware of the frames when you watch the picture because it looks continuous but like if you watch the light you can kind of see the light changing from frame to frame and and he would encourage people to do that and so i i believe if you were alive today you know he would use the latest technology the, the latest update and he would say it's like a movie but it's also a it's also one that's interactive and we're the actors, but we're also the watchers. So the actors are called players, right? In Shakespeare's time. And it's an interactive game and we can kind of change the story, even though we have scripts, we can make choices. And what does that sound like? It sounds like an interactive multiplayer video game, right? And so I believe if he were alive today, he would use the analogy that we live inside a video game. And he would explain some of the miracles, which we can talk about in a minute as masters understanding how to render the light at the time he called him the light atoms right but today in a video game we would think of them as the pixels of the world right and being able to render the pixels of the world just in the same way that i'm not really talking to you now i'm talking to my computer right and that is being rendered on your computer and you're talking to that we are just rendering these digital bits of information as we talk to each other so so you know the whole world being a game is one of the key messages in this book and i believe that is something that yogananda would say if you were alive today yeah yeah and again so well put and i really what i wonder you know and you i couldn't think of a better person to ask this riz because you know you've taken a traditional approach to learning all this stuff through academia you're someone who's very familiar with science what we're talking about is very spiritual. And I wonder how you reconcile the two, because, you know, in, in Yogananda's time, when he arrived in America, as a result of the industrial revolution and the advances that were occurring in science, people were gravitating away from God and religion. But it seems like we're sort of circling back 360 here, where the two are becoming together again where people are being are now maybe more able to equip spirituality and a scientific mindset part you know together whereas before maybe they were a little bit seemingly opposed what are your thoughts on that i mean would yogananda have thought that himself back then as atheism was kind of new at the time yeah you know so he i think part of his mission in life was to try to bring these back together, right? And so if we think about it, 500 years ago, right, or so, you know, Galileo was prosecuted by the church for, you know, saying, look at science and look at, you know, planets and the Copernican, you know, Copernican view of the world. And since then, it's kind of gone the other way, right? 500 years later, we've gone to where most scientists and certainly academics are encouraged at least to have an atheistic view of the world, whether that's their personal view or not, that's the public view that they present. Right. And part of Yogananda's goal, you know, was to try to show that these things are not in conflict. I mean, he profiled a number of scientists 
in his in autobiography of yogi and he was up on some of the latest science particularly like einstein's theory of relativity and he talked about how the world is composed of light right and he talked about the atoms and how things happen and he tied that to yoga and he used to call yoga the science of religion right so i feel like he was a bridge he was trying to be a bridge between the east and the west right one but two he was also trying to be a bridge between science and religion Right. And that's why he would use these analogies. And he was great friends with Luther Burbank, who, you know, worked on the science of plants, for example, and bred different types of plants in L.A. And in India, you know, there were a number of scientists that he profiled. And so today I feel like, you know, we've gotten further and further apart. But with quantum physics, we found that there almost is no physical world. Right. That's what I found when I was doing my research into quantum physics for the simulation hypothesis is they keep looking for this thing called matter and they can't find it, right? Because the, if this table is mostly 90% empty space and then you go and you look inside an atom and it's mostly 90% empty space, and then you look inside the nucleus and then you know, you're looking for these things. And, you know, John Wheeler who was a famous physicist from the 20th century who worked with Einstein and Bohr. He came to the conclusion towards the end of his life that everything was just information that there was no such thing called this matter. And, you know, I, you could quote Yogananda's book, and he says, if it must be so, then let man learn from science that there is no material world, that the warp and woof of the material world is maya or illusion, right? And so that's like almost a direct quote from Autobiography of Yogi. And it's tying very much to what I was trying to say in my previous books about the simulations that there is no physical world, that the physical world gets rendered for us as we go in the same way that I said, you and I aren't really talking to each other, but I'm seeing a rendering of you. So it feels like I'm talking to you. And there's a, you know, uh, I, I interviewed a number of professors about Yogananda during the writing of this book. And one of them was Diana Pasoka. I don't know if you know her. She wrote uh, American Cosmic which is about, she's a professor of religion yes, uh, with a focus on Catholic religion at University of North Carolina. And, you know, I asked her, well, what do you think of these stories, you know, as somebody in academia of like, you know, levitating saints and, you know, people with two bodies and, you know, telepathic messages being sent and a guy's living hundreds of years. And, you know, and she said, well, well, she read these as a kid in, in San Francisco, she was growing up. She believed all these because there were similar saints similar stories of saints in the Catholic tradition. But then when she went into academia, she was conditioned to not believe them, right? That the way to study whether it's religion or UFOs in academia is that this is a sociological phenomenon. So we can just study the people, but you know we're not studying whether these things were real because they're probably not, right? <laughs> That's the general attitude. And so she said she was conditioned away from believing this stuff. So she was just studying. But then she went to the Vatican as part of her you know, research. And she mentions part of this trip in American Cosmic. But part of the reason why she was there was she was studying the canonization records of Joseph of Cupertino. And she said that when she went in there and saw those records, she saw the records of the devil's advocate who, you know, I don't know if you know this process, that when the church, when somebody says this guy was a saint because a miracle happened here, you know, they assign a dead devil's advocate who's supposed to disprove that this, he's, he's supposed to say this miracle never really happened. So he's supposed to go out and investigate. 
And supposedly this guy was what Diana called a big time rationalist, right? Who didn't believe this stuff. So he went out and he ended up coming back with signatures of over a thousand people that were in the square in Cupertino who saw Joseph levitate up into the air. And, you know, she came away to at least to say, well, you know what? Maybe this stuff isn't so crazy. Like so many people have seen it and there are records of it. And so it could very much be that this stuff is still happening today or certainly during Yogananda's time, you know, that they are displaying these strange abilities and that the world is pretty malleable. And so, you know, part of the reason why I'm writing a book now, both this book and the simulation hypothesis, part of my personal mission has also been, you know, to try to bridge the gap, right, between science and let's say religion and mysticism, right? Because I believe that there is an overlap there and that we are we will eventually understand how these things work. But there's an attitude among many scientists, you know, that kind of stop us, stop them from really, there's like a stigma still associated around certain topics within the scientific community. And UFOs being one of them that's starting to change. But, you know, these types of miracles as being another. I interviewed, as part of my research for, I'm working on a doctorate now in science and technology studies. And one of the research projects I'm doing is on the stigma around studying UFOs. And as part of it, I interviewed another religious studies professor who studies early Christianity. And he said there were only two views in academia about the Christian miracles, right, in the Bible. He goes, one is either you're a Christian and you believe everything and that this was God and that's the only possibility. He goes, those are smaller, but obviously if you're in divinity school or something and you're a Christian priest, that's what you're going to believe, right? He goes, or the view of the majority of academics is there are no miracles happening now, therefore they didn't happen then either, right? That's it. And he said, well, maybe there's a third option is that the miracles did happen, but we don't understand how or why. <laughs> and that's where he's, he's working. And I think that's a good attitude to have towards a lot of this stuff. But I do believe that there are things in science now that are so weird and unexplained around consciousness, around quantum mechanics, around time and space, that perhaps we're coming back you know, to this world that the world is a bit of an illusion. And it's not just you know, in the Hindu traditions and Buddhist traditions where that is like a core tenet, right? Maya, the world of being an illusion, is a core tenet within those traditions. But I was in the UK this summer and I gave a talk at a, a Islamic institute there about Islam and the simulation hypothesis. And I came out, I pulled out some of these verses from the Quran that basically say, I mean, if you look at these translations, it's pretty amazing. It says, we, meaning God in this case, we have set up this world for you as a game, a sport, and a pastime, right? And that this is not the real world. This is the world of the here, but the real world's the hereafter. And that, you know, you are here to like, you know, have fun, have children, multiply your riches, do all these things that you do, which sounds so much like, you know, the game of life, if you think about it, right? And so, you know, this idea cuts across different religions that the world is a kind of game that we are in. Right. Now, I wonder, maybe Yogananda would have thought about this, obviously may have foreseen it, who knows, but we're living in a world where now something like a vision can be hypothetically created, right? I mean, to someone 200 years ago, if they saw a VR headset, put it on their head, aside from the 
material technology that might amaze them. What they're seeing, their only explanation for that would be, oh, this is like a vision or a dream that I'm being given. So I wonder, you know, within that line of thinking, you know, the same way that our bodies can build up a tolerance to, let's say, Advil, and then we need a stronger, you know, stronger milligram dosage or whatever the, you know, medicine is. Do you think we could reach that point where we augment ourselves technologically to where our soul sort of or spiritual capabilities maybe weaken because we have this ulterior or this, um, you know, we have this alternative rather in the same way that, you know, medicine can kind of do that in the body where we build up a tolerance, you know, a better example would be like, you know, melatonin. If you take too much melatonin, your brain may lose the capability to create melatonin. And that would be a big problem if you want to ever get a good night's rest. So, I mean, what are your thoughts? Am I kind of outside the realms of rationality here with this speculation? What do you think would be the case with something like that, at least from Yogananda's perspective? Well, if we look at the Eastern traditions in general, you know, I, I mentioned this metaphor about the dream and you know, in the Buddhist traditions, and even in the Hindu traditions, they'll say you're a lo- you're lost in the dream. You're lost in samsara, right? The warp and woof of the world, right? And within the Tibetan traditions, they have a practice called dream yoga, right? Which is kind of akin to what we call lucid dreaming today, but there's a whole spiritual component that lucid dreaming lacks, right? But the idea is that the monks learn to wake up inside a dream in the middle of the dream to realize, hey, that this is just a dream. It's not real. And when they do that, they can then, you know, do things in the dream. They can manipulate things in the dream. If you've ever done this yourself, you know, you can fly. And I've done some lucid dreaming. I write about it in my first book, Zen Entrepreneurship, which I wrote many years ago, you know, where flying is a key element for me inside dreams that lets me know that this is a dream, not physical reality, because I can't, at least as far as I know, I can't fly in the physical world. (laughs) I can do it in the dream world. But then they take that training and that insight into the physical world to say that, you know, you need to do the same thing in the physical world. You need to realize that this is just a dream. You need to remember that there is another part of you that is outside the dream and that this is being created for you. And so I mentioned this because they talk about the dream within the dream. Or earlier I mentioned Yogananda's vision about the newsreels of World War One and movies. And the message he got from kind of a divine voice was, it's a play within a play, right? It's like a dream. And he's used this term about dream within a dream, right? And talking about reincarnation as well, like you're awakening from one dream into another. And so I think the dream metaphor is very important, as is this idea of being lost in the dream. Now today, we get lost, not just in the physical world, we get lost in the virtual world, right? Especially with social media, right? How many of us are like on social media or we're worried about the likes that we might get? Or I got to check in the Instagram, I got to check in the Twitter, I got to check in the Facebook, or not Twitter anymore, or whatever it's called now, right? or TikTok, and we get lost. And these things become really important to us, or we get upset. Somebody makes a comment on social media in the same way that we might have gotten upset that somebody did something in, in the physical world in the past. And especially over the last few years, we've gone online. So I do think that with as you get to these create these worlds like virtual reality world, we will get to the simulation point, which is what I call it's a theoretical point, a technological singularity where we will be able to create matrix like realities, right? And we can get lost in those realities. 
And what will happen to us at that point, like call it a technological singularity, because even though the term singularity is used mostly about AI getting past a point where it becomes super intelligent, it was really meant to be where technology gets humans to a point where everything will be different, right? That's, that was the part of the original meaning with AI or with human AI combination. It was by a sci-fi writer slash computer scientist named Werner Vinge, who wrote an article about the singularity. And he's written some great sci-fi books like Rainbows and, and many others. And he kind of predicted the whole internet thing with a with a with something called True Names, a story called True Names, way back when, in like 1980, I think he wrote it. But in any case, I think at that point we also have this fear, this danger of getting lost in the dream world, which in this case would be a virtual world. And so I think on the one hand it could get us kind of two levels deep, right? <laughs> on the other hand, it could also be used as a tool. <laughs> to allow us, just like the Tibetans use dream yoga, as a tool to allow us to realize the spiritual potential. And you know, this is where it could also be that our consciousness, which is biological, physically is hosted in a biological device, but may not be biological at all, right? This is the big debate within science. Is consciousness something that comes from the outside into the body, or is it something that just comes out of the neurons and you know materialists would say it's just a property of the neurons if we just get the neurons right we'll have intelligence but the more religious side and i think the more philosophical people would say it seems like there's something more going on here and certainly in all the religions it would say consciousness is coming from outside but i like to view that as uh, you know an, a player and an avatar right the player is lives outside of the game and the avatar is the character in the game and for a while you are stuck to that avatar, right? You think that's all there is. In fact, what happens when we give birth or a process called ensoulment by religious scholars, right? nobody knows what that means. Right? <laughs> like when is the soul in the body? And I say, well, it's when you put on the headset and you forget <laughs> that there was, there was a player. And the only thing you see is the avatar. And maybe in dreams and when you're in downtime, you might remember. And But there's also this element of AI and neurons being uploaded into these virtual worlds. And is it possible that the soul requires a complex enough substrate, like a biological one, to inhabit? Could it also inhabit an AI substrate, right? Like if we get AI that's that has enough complexity, could that AI also have a soul, right? And that that is an interesting question. Whether you're a materialist, and you don't believe in a soul, in which case you say, yes, it's the same. <laughs> or if you're more of a spiritualist and you believe that the soul exists outside the body, that, you know, you would say, you know, well, no, that's not a body. But then what if the body became, you know, significantly complex enough to host that outside thing called the soul? And maybe that's already what's happening here is that, you know, our human physiology has gotten complex enough to host at least enough part of consciousness that we can be conscious beings, whereas maybe a snail can't do that, right? It might be able to host a smaller part of us. Is it possible that we could have AI robots that could host <laughs> a larger part of consciousness that can actually, because people talk about when they're in near-death experiences, right? They have this ineffable experience, this experience they can't put in words. But one thing they'll say, folks like Daniel Brinkley, who wrote Saved by the Light, or Anita Morjani, who wrote Dying to Be Me, which are kind of like well-known, famous books about NDEs. And, you know, they'll talk about how 
everything makes sense. <laughs> you see all the connections, right? And uh, Anita Morjani uses this idea, this analogy of uh, you're in a huge warehouse and all you have is a little flashlight and you're shining it down and one apart. And that's all you see when you're in the body. But when you're not, you see it all. And is it also because maybe the body can't, the brain can't house all of that? We cross what the Greeks call the river of forgetfulness when we come in, in into this body. Is it possible that we would do something similar with virtual reality and with AI? So anyway, it's kind of a long-winded answer, but there's a there's a lot of complexity there, I think. But it could go either way. It could make us further lost in Maya, or it could make us understand Maya better. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that you went with a long-winded answer because it is a complex topic. And maybe we can wrap up on this question. I mean... As you've seen it, you've studied this at length. What are some of the maybe risks associated with, because I think a lot of people, when any new technology is available or talked about, they immediately generate fear, suspicion, these sorts of lower vibrational energies. And hey, for good reason sometimes, right? I mean, I'm sure the guys who saw fireworks being invented thought maybe this is going to end up you know going down the road be, being a bad thing and here we are in the 21st century with claymore mines and grenades and all these other things right so you know i wonder you know as you've seen it what are some of the risks associated with this leap into augmented reality virtual reality and so on i mean is it merely forgetfulness or do you think that these sorts of technologies could be used to go against human beings. I mean, that's really what I think a lot of people are speculating is that, oh, it's, we're creating the Terminator. Right. So there's a lot of fear around, you know, the AI apocalypse, let's call it, right? And will super intelligence will get to the point where it wants to destroy us. And there was a number of scientists and technologists and people like Elon Musk and you know, MIT professors like Max Tegmark and others you know, signed this letter saying, hey, we need to stop GPT-4 Stop research there. Don't go to ChatGPT five or ChatGPT six, because you know this could be an existential risk for the human race. And of course, this has been around since the Terminator and even earlier. You can go back to the movie Metropolis, which was made in the nineteen twenties, and there's a robot in there, right? There was even this fear back then that the machines and the robots were going to replace us, right? There was that whole fear, and you know that robot from Metropolis was kind of a a model for George Lucas when they made Star Wars. So it looks like a little bit like C-3PO if you look at it, you know, for example. But so so there is that fear, but there's always fear with new technology. Like like AI and computers have been going to take away our jobs, you know, pretty much since the automation era and certainly in the 50s and 60s when computers came out. But they haven't necessarily, they've created new jobs, right? And I personally, I think that's what's going to happen with AI. I think the, the real thing about AI is that its motivation will be different than ours, right? And it's more likely to get to AGI, artificial general intelligence, first than before it could get to something like super intelligence, which is what everybody's worried about, right? They're worried about Skynet, right? But the AGI will have AI that is as intelligent as us, at least within certain parameters, right? And I believe that'll happen more. It's more likely to happen in the virtual world. Right. So we create, if you watch now, there's something called smart NPCs emerging, which are like NPC stands for non player character, which is like an AI within a video game. Uh, usually they were dumb AIs. They would do things like 
the bartender at the tavern. They only had a few lines, right? Or, you know, you could lead have a dialogue tree. But now people are starting to hook up the NPCs to LLMs like ChatGPT, large language models. And so they're starting to become more intelligent and you can start to have conversations. There's a great video. If anybody's interested in simulation theory, there's a guy who used this recent version. They took the Matrix Awakens. This company did this called Replica. They took the Matrix Awakens, which is a video game demo that was released by Unreal Engine and by Warner Brothers just before the new Matrix movie came out two years ago. And so it's a very realistic looking city. And you can you know, kind of explore the city. And there's Keanu Reeves and there's other, there's a whole bunch of characters. And they were kind of dumb characters, right, for the most part. And you're shooting at them and stuff. They were dumb NPCs. And so they hooked these NPCs up to the large language models. And there's a video of a guy who decided to go through and start telling these NPCs that they're in a video game. <laughs> and they're like, no, get out of here. I'm too busy for this crap. Right? <laughs> you can see the reaction of the NPCs is kind of like the reaction of what we humans, right? <laughs> oh, you might go through by saying to people. And so I think AGI raises a lot more interesting questions in the near term than super intelligence. If you've ever seen the movie Her, have you ever seen that movie? No. Uh, it I, I've heard of the concept. Of, I think it, I, it was there was a big buzz around it when it came out. It has to do with yeah, the guy who like, dates a program on his phone, right? Yeah, I think it was a Joaquin Phoenix plays, I forget the guy's name, character's name in the movie, but he has a relationship with an AI that was just like on a phone. And the voice of the AI was from Scarlett Johansson, right? right. So he had kind of a sexy voice, right? <laughs> and he has this relationship with her. And the guy who made the movie, I think it was Spike Jones, the director, who saw these chatbots earlier and said, wow, these chatbots are getting really good. There was a chatbot called Alice, I think, that was pretty good. And so that's what gave him the idea for the movie. But those chatbots were not as sophisticated as today's. I mean, that's what ChatGPT is basically, right? It's a giant chatbot with some better capabilities than the ones from 10 years ago, which he saw. And in that movie, you know, he's going along having this relationship. And then at the end, he asks her, how many people are you in a relationship with like this? Right. She goes, well, something, some number, I forget the number, like 731. <laughs> and then that's when you realize, okay, the AI has a different set of priorities and they process at different speeds. For them, that's no big deal, right? To have 731 simultaneous conversations. For us, that's a big deal in order to have relationships. So they have a different set of values. Is the point I'm getting. At the end of that movie, I mean, it's, it's over 10 years old, so I don't think I'm giving away too much. But what happens is the AI doesn't want to come out to the physical world. It wants to go hang out with the other AI, right? Because those, you know, there's a level of interaction that they have at higher speeds that's much different. And they just need a virtual world where they can do that. And so what I worry about with AI and the weapons is, and this is true with going back to fireworks and all the technologies, humans will use AI to kill other humans, right? I don't worry so much that the AI will on its own decide to kill humans and take over because why would it, right? Uh, there's a great story by this guy named Ted Chang, who was the writer of the story of the movie The Arrival was based on. Did you ever see that, The Arrival? It was like this movie with these aliens with these giant pods landed Amy Adams was in it and a bunch of other people. It was not that long ago, 2017 or something. But anyway, he wrote that, but he's also a software guy. And he wrote a story called The Life Cycle of Software Objects, where there were these intelligent pets in the metaverse. And then the companies went out of business, but what happened to these intelligent pets? But during that time, these intelligent pets, who were used to being in a virtual world, could come and inhabit a robot body in the physical world. 
And turns out they didn't like that. They're like, God, this world is so constricted. I can't fly. I can't portal out. I can't jump. I can do all these things that I could do <laughs> in the virtual world easily. I can't do in the physical world. So I have a feeling that maybe AI isn't going to be as interested in the virtual, in the real world as we are, but humans are interested, right? And they will use AI to try to improve the weapons of destruction to kill other humans. And that's where I think the real danger comes in, not so much from the, the AI itself. Right, right. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think that's exactly the conundrum we're in. And, you know, the old adage, the government's 50 to 100 years ahead of anything that's publicly available. So who knows, maybe they've already had some kind of doom bot that they've been communicating with and closed doors in these shadowy boardrooms. But hey, that's talk for a different podcast. Riz, this has been so fun and I definitely want to turn people to zenentrepreneur.com where they can learn all about everything you have going on. It's not just your books. You got a blog, a podcast. What else do you have to promote before we get going here? Wisdom of a Yogi is your latest book. Yeah, that's the latest book, and its subtitle is Lessons for Modern Seekers from Autobiography of a Yogi. And, you know, it's a good book for anyone who may have read Autobiography of a Yogi years ago, but maybe don't remember the stories, and for people who haven't, because it's a good introduction. I had one younger person tell me, you know, Autobiography of a Yogi is 500 pages, and it was really big, and I didn't want to start on it, but now I'm reading your book, and I'm thinking I can just go in and read some stories, and that's a good way to get into it as well, I think, you know. So, so yeah, on my website, they can download chapters from my existing, various existing books, you know, whether it's the simulation books or my book on synchronicity or, or uh, this book as well. And there's a lot of articles that I've written up there as well. So, yeah, that, that's a good place. And they can follow me on Twitter or on X, I should say, at Riz Stanford, which is spelled just like R-I-Z and Stanford, the university as well. Right on. Well, I really appreciate you joining me for this conversation, Riz. This has been a really fun time. And you have one Man, more there's thing one more to... thing I did want to mention. You said if people are interested in this idea of the simulation and how it relates to mysticism, religion, and technology, I am teaching an online course. So I taught a course at Arizona State University this last year, which was the first course on this idea that simulation theory is highly interdisciplinary. And, it, you know, because it pulls in philosophy and religion and science and tech. And so I'm teaching a version of that class online starting in September, on September 6th for a, a site called Morbid Anatomy. So it's morbidanatomy.com. And the class is called The Simulation Hypothesis, Science, Religion, and Techno-Philosophy. And so if people are interested, that's something they can actually sign up for and, and join me on that class and meet with me, you know, weekly for one class lab. Wonderful. Well, I'll be sure to get the links for that and put it in the description. So folks listening, follow up with that and go to zenentrepreneur.com, learn more about what everything, what Riz has to offer. I mean, this book, Wisdom of a Yogi, I'm ordering it right now because it's something that I first encountered. I don't know if you've ever seen at like little gas stations or like bodegas, you'd have a little like plastic shelf with a donation bucket and you have all these really nice books, paperback books from, you know, from autobiography to of a yogi to like uh, Ayurvedic cooking to the Bhagavad Gita. So I used to buy those books just out of curiosity when I was in college. And yeah, this would be a good addition to my little collection. So yeah, I really, I love this stuff. I'd love to have you back on to talk more about this and maybe even expand into that AI 
virtual reality simulation conversation some more because people really loved our first conversation. And I'm sure they're going to have a lot of follow-up questions after this one. Absolutely. Sounds good. Right on. Well, until next time, folks, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was our conversation with Rizwan Verk. Go ahead and follow up with him at zenentrepreneur.com. You can find his books there as well as a bunch of other material to dive into. I've spoken to Riz before. You can also check out that episode. And of course, let us know what you think. I'd love to hear from you. Leave us a five-star rating and review, and I'll read your review here on the show. That is the best way to help the show next to donating, because that's how we get exposed to new listeners. The better the show does in ratings and reviews, the more Apple shows us to other people, suggestions, and things like that. We've been doing well. We've been in the top 20 in the philosophy category here in the United States for quite a while we go back and forth between top 20 top 30 top 10 i think we were even in the top five uh when we had one really big episode but more great episodes on the way i hope you guys like this episode with riz i don't know sometimes the uh, spirituality episodes don't get as much play but that's all right i'm interested in them and i think you ought to be too because this is a a bit of a respite from the uh, more serious and definitely tragic conversations like the ones about the Maui fire. So my heart still goes out to all those people who are uh, enduring that and, and really all of us are enduring it together through the collective consciousness. So thoughts and prayers to them. I want to give a big shout out to our new patron supporters, some of which are uh, super kind and uh, signed up, I think, like for the whole year, which is awesome. I love when people do that. But we got to give a shout out to our Patreon supporters. And I may have given you a shout out already, but guess what? You'll get another one. So we got Eric Stallman. Shout out to you. We got the Paranoid American, which I got to sign up for his Patreon. So shout out to you if you guys aren't familiar with Paranoid American. He is a really cool dude. He's been on the show before. He makes comic books. He's also making a YouTube podcast now. Uh, shout out to Infinite Consciousness. Shout out to Alex D. Shout out to Zach GCD. Shout out to David. Shout out to Brennan P shout out to susan h welcome to the family as i now like to say so thank you for signing up to the patreon and if you are not yet signed up sign up you get access to bonus episodes they're there you just got to over to my page and click the about tab actually the pinned post at the top explains exactly how to get the podcast rss feed which once you have the rss feed for supporters only you can take that copy paste it into whichever app you use to listen to podcasts except for spotify unfortunately i don't think you can do it on spotify um but once you have that 
it should be pretty obvious where the bonus episodes are. You'll be able to find them. And you'll also have all of the um, main episodes that I give away for free uh, at least 12 hours early. So sometimes they come out a couple days early. Sometimes they come out 12 hours early. But I always try to give you them 12 hours early. So, hey, if you're somebody who, like me, wakes up really early in the morning, at least I used to, uh, to go to work, you might want something like this right you want to wake up and have access to the content you don't want to wait till it comes out later in the day so sign up for the patreon not only do you get the bonus content and the early access but you also support this show and help us continue to grow and do bigger and better things like once we reach our 250 patron goal I will commit to doing at least one in-person interview per month. And hey, that's just the first goal. So maybe when we get to 500, I'll do something even crazier. But we got a lot of awesome things on the horizon. I want to get some new rap music for the show. I want to get some new art for the show. So if you think you can help out with that, reach out. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Of course, we always got to give a shout out to The Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit. I love Garrett. He's the man. Sends me cool stuff all the time. And uh, if you aren't aware, the devices that he makes are a great way to conceal, store, keep safe your lighter, and whatever you're smoking on. Blunts, joints, spliffs, cigarettes, whatever it is. Throw it in your hit kit. You'll be good to go. And uh, yeah, that's it for me, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Send us a one-time donation. Sign up on Patreon. Support the show. Keep it going. Links are in the description. And enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Fuck up. <clears throat> Man, I think, I think I'm fucking peeking right now. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, my third eye's open and my chakras flowing. All seven channels in my spirits flowing. Knowledge feeling deeper than the ocean. It's the eightfold path in the sacred lotus. Uh, I'm peeking, flipping through Akashic records. My ego's decomposing like a leper. I'm Mega Casey going some levitation. So with zero hesitation as I jump into the spaceship. I'm weary from faking like an earthling. While skyfish dip and dive above the earth circling. I'm spiraling, sacred geometry. Studying my old selves like it's anthropology. Honestly, feeling like life's a comedy. As big a game as a paper run economy. I've been playing safe, but safe is for the weaker heart. Wait. I'm peeking, tearing everything apart Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm beta testing old theta frequencies I lay to rest the ego and the frequent themes That keep me seeing life inside a box Small minds kick rocks, Pandora, let's talk uh, 
I might need a suture for this rift in space. I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes. I'm hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite. And every time I'm peeking, I can see it for an instant. I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd. Sheeps in their seats and the wolves on the prowl. Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles. Consumerism living in their vacant smiles. Uh, now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky. Try gaining wisdom on the fly. I'm touching base with things I can't explain. Gods without names on a different plane. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. But I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain But I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person But the vibes are perfect uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain But I feel it like a purpose Wait, 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 wait.